You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this special holiday edition of Commute. Every year around this season, we hear the song 12 Days of Christmas, most likely several times. But where did this song that seemingly makes little to no sense come from? And it would cost how much to buy all the gifts in the song? It's almost Christmas time, and you know what that means. Santa Claus is about to be a ton of places at once. And no, we're not talking about your house on Christmas Eve night. This week, what's it take to be a mall Santa? In 1914, while the world was at war, both sides took an unauthorized hiatus to the fighting. But why? Well, there's just something about a little Christmas magic. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, it's been said on this show before, but my day job is that I teach ninth grade world history. And I usually try to start my bell ringers with something kind of interesting or sometimes controversial just to kind of get the class involved. And so for the past two days, uh, the first day was, uh, what is the best Christmas song and why? And the second one was, what is the best Christmas movie and why? So just kind of speaking on terms of Christmas media, songs and movies, what are some of the top ones for you? So I grew up on a Christmas album that came out in 1958. Johnny Mathis, Merry Christmas. Is, isn't it called like Johnny on skis? He's holding like skis, which is which is very <laughs> attractive. He looks good on the front the front cover. It's a great cover, really. It might be the best Christmas album cover. Christmas movies. I think we've talked about this before on the show. My favorite Christmas movie is the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, Jingle All the Way. Now I was thinking about you today because all of these students, I see over a hundred students a day, and I got a lot of answers for best Christmas movies. Not a single kid mentioned jingle all the not way. A single not jingle. a single one. Well, the youth of today cannot be trusted. It's up to you, my friend, to teach them things beyond the classroom. So <laughs> this is really on you. Well, Dave, we're going to be talking uh, 12 Days of Christmas, the song that I know you've heard, you're familiar with. Um, I don't know if you feel like you can name all 12. I thought I could, and then I started, and I got through about three. Uh, there's some real tricky there's ones There's a partridge in, there. in a pear tree, golden rings, uh, I think that's it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if I sang it out, I think I could get at least half of them. Dave, the famous carol, The Twelve Days of Christmas, technically marks in the Christian theology the span of 12 days between the birth of Christ on December 25th and the arrival of the Magi, or the three wise men, on January 6th. The four-week period of Advent refers to the build-up to Christmas itself, while the 12 days following Christmas are observed in different ways across cultures, kind of depending on where you are. So the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, while it refers to gifts, is not necessarily referring to the gifts of the Magi, but rather is a long list of gifts that are given to a true love, building from 1 to 12. 
Now, the origin of this song, though, it's sort of shrouded in some mystery to a degree. According to Vox, the earliest known version of it appeared in a 1780 children's book called Mirth Without Mischief, which, by the way, Dave, a first edition copy of that book sold for $23,750 at an auction in 2014. Now, historians think the song may have come from France, but historians do agree that the song was designed as what we call a memory and forfeit game in which singers test their knowledge of the lyrical recall and then award their opponent a favor or something if they make a mistake. The song has many variations, including bears abating and ships a-sailing, but the song that most of us are familiar with comes from an English composer named Frederick Austin, who arranged the lyrics in 1909. Now, although many have theorized that the song is a giant coded reference to Christianity, such as the two turtle doves referring to the Old and New Testaments and the six geese a-laying referring to the six days of creation, according to Snopes, this theory has little truth or merit and makes more sense as a theory created for chain emails or Facebook posts from your aunt who doesn't really fact check anything online. Now, Dave, if you were going to actually purchase all the items from the song The Twelve Days of Christmas, well, you better tap into your savings account. The PNC Financial Services Group Annual Christmas Price Index, which have they've been putting out since 1984, calculates the cost of giving all the gifts in the song, which, due to inflation, gets more expensive every year. So the total for 2022, according to Vox, Tops out at $45,523.27, and that's up 10.5% from 2021, or $197,071.09 if you actually bought each mention of an item separately, a 9.8% increase from last year. The price of gold is obviously important for the five golden rings, which would cost around $1,245, by the way. But some haven't changed a bit, such as the eight maids of milking, which would only cost you $58 since the federal minimum wage hasn't risen since 2009. And ultimately, Dave, while expensive, most of the gifts mentioned in the song would be useless to the average person, unless you're planning on eating the many birds you'd be receiving. All right, let's see if I can get at least the last five. All right, here we go. Okay. Five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two little doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Well, it is turtle doves, not little doves. (laughs) Jay, do you take your kids to see santa claus like maybe at a mall or preferably one of the more random places that offer pics with santa like a local deli (laughs) well definitely not at a local deli but yeah i mean we participate you know past couple years we don't want to get you know covid from santa or anything like that we don't want to give covid to santa but exactly yeah he's pretty important naughty list for a long time um so yeah we we do that uh the kids my my two i have twin four-year-olds they're like super fascinated by santa uh, one of them is, you know, fully convinced that he exists. The other one is already starting to question it. So it's kind of like, this is not going to last very long. Yeah, whenever I think about Santa, though, I kind of think of a core memory that I have, which is whenever I was still at believing age, and it was Christmas Eve, I woke up in the middle of the night, 
and I had probably the most vivid dream I've ever had in my life of Santa sleigh flying by my window. And it was like all the reindeer hooves and everything. Like I can still see it so vividly. And I woke up the next day, like so convinced that Santa existed because I had this dream and I could tell my parents were like kind of getting annoyed a little bit. Like they were like, like, cause I was at that age where it was like, they were like, okay, yeah, he, he saw Santa last night. Like stop lying. You're like, you know, six years old or whatever. Well, I actually have a, a similar memory of seeing the Easter bunny. And so we always stayed at my grandparents' house on Easter. And so I, I thought I saw the Easter bunny. So I walked in there and said, Easter bunny. And it was my grandpa. He was, he was up <laughs> in the newspaper. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but Jay, I think all parents would agree. It's always a parenthood goal to raise your kids to be better than you. And as is well documented on the show, when I was a kid, and to some extent today, I have always been kind of scared of people in masks, and yes, that includes mall Santa Clauses. We haven't taken my son yet, more so because I just kind of don't want to, but I'm sure, unlike me, he'd be fine. But Jay, you might take a look at one of these mall Santas and think that it's an easy gig for slightly overweight guys with long white beards who don't mind wearing red to make a few extra bucks. Like, the requirement list to be a Santa can't be that long, right? And sit on a chair all day with kids cycling in and out just telling you what they want for Christmas and you take a few pictures with them and that's it? It's gotta be relatively easy. Well, no. Jay, just about any Santa who's ever done it will tell you It's not at all as simple as it appears. There's no harder job in all of Christmas than being the mall Santa. Paul Sheehan, who has been St. Nick for nearly 40 years, told Mental Floss. Between Black Friday and Christmas Eve at 3 p.m., I've seen over 17,000 kids. Someone in a bigger city, well, they're doing twice and maybe three times that. But Jay, grueling work or not, there's a lot of joy and dedication that goes into being the king of Christmas. So what does it take? Well, for starters, most Santas go to Santa College, Santa University, run by the events company Nor Programs Corporation, trains and educates Santas for nearly 300 major malls or shopping centers around the U.S. Santas pass background checks, undergo Christmas-themed interviews, I'd love to sit in on those, (laughs) and according to Nor, must, now this is a must, must have a real beard. Every August, Jay, Noor hosts its annual four-day Santa University in Colorado, where each aspiring Santa learns the ins and outs of being the jolly man in red. Part of the education? Learning how to stay in character all year long. The most important (laughs) thing they need to understand is that they are Santa, and they always are to remain in the character of Santa. Ruth Rosenquist from Noor told Mental Floss, they are never ever to break character. And Jay, this goes beyond the yearly Santa stint. Since most Santas, well, look like Santa all year, they have to be prepared when kids see them at the beach during the summer and ask them what they're doing. Most refrain from things like public smoking or alcohol consumption just to keep up the image. And Jay, all that hard work means mall Santas are paid pretty well. Nor Company doesn't disclose how much each Santa that works with them makes, but while it can depend on location and volume, some veteran Santas reportedly earn up to $30,000 for just six weeks of work. Now, if you're wondering, and if you are a commute listener, I'm sure you are wondering, what the real Santa should be getting paid, well, a few years ago, the site Insure.com calculated that very thing. 
Insure.com found that the real Santa should be earning about 140000 ish per year for all of the work that he does. This includes the oversight of the toy factory and, of course, dealing with the elf-related HR issues. Mall Santas also have to be quick on their feet. I'll ask Mrs. Claus is a signature phrase for I don't want to answer that. And Santas also need to be careful not to promise anything. The NOR training Jay focuses on hope without making any guarantees, putting those unfair expectations on parents. And finally, because, you know, things happen, the best Santas carry liability insurance. All it takes is one squirming kid, and Santa could be seeing his stocking filled with a mixture of coal and hefty medical bills. <laughs> but not to fear for old jolly Saint Nick, it's very rare that a Santa is successfully sued, and they get better rates on insurance, believe it or not, through their advocacy group, the name appropriately, the International Brotherhood of Real Bearded Santas. Yeah, them always staying in character all year is a little much. You know, I'm thinking about if my neighbor was a mall Santa and he, like, blew his leaves in my yard or something and he, like, won't drop the Santa act. That would just be really infuriating. Uh, didn't we talk, I think one of the first episodes of Commute, we talked about Ronald McDonald and how if you're Ronald McDonald, like, you have to stay in character at all times. You're not allowed to break it. Yeah, no one can ever know. Yeah, a lot of common DNA there. There's also a secret Santa greeting. So if you're out somewhere and you want to kind of, if you see somebody maybe shopping who looks like a Santa, you could just kind of casually say, brother in red. <laughs> and if he responds to it, he's a Santa. So that's like their secret code. It's like the Masons you, if they or something. they answer to brother in red, it is. If they answer to brother in red, they're a Santa. So, Dave, we always kind of talk about our segments a little bit by text before we actually sit down and record, just so we kind of know what we're going to talk about during the episode. And a lot of times, like very often, I'll text you something and say, you know, I kind of want to do it on this, but I feel like everybody already knows about this. And most of the time, you respond with, I don't, I've never heard of that, and I don't think people know about that. And we've kind of termed it like history teacher bias. It's kind of like I'll, I'll have things that I know that I just think everybody knows. And we ran into that today because you had never heard about what I'm about to tell you. I, I haven't heard of this, but also i got to be honest with you. Every time you do that, I think he's trying to flex a little. <laughs> like you're trying to prove how much you know, and you know I don't know it. Well, I'm a very so humble person. I see person, you. So, you. I know, hear you. I want you to know that. I know what you're doing. You know, in the spirit of the Christmas season, I would appreciate no shots being uh, taken at me in public on the podcast. I'll, I'll assume the best of you. <laughs> well, Dave, the Christmas season is a powerful thing. And like we said, it has this strange way of uniting people, even in the middle of some pretty terrible divisions. To see a great example of this, let's go back to Christmas 1914. Now, for context, Dave, we first got to understand that the world in 1914, especially in Europe, was pretty chaotic. World War I had started earlier that year and was proving to be, at least at the time, one of the costliest wars in all of history. The war was being fought in trenches throughout Europe, and it was brutal, bloody, and it had already resulted in the death of some 405,000 people with no end in sight. Earlier in December, Pope Benedict XV actually even suggested a temporary ceasefire for the Christmas season, which the warring countries refused. But the power of Christmas can't be denied, Dave. 
And on Christmas Eve 1914, a captain in the British Army named Arthur O'Sullivan heard a voice across the no-man's land between the German and British trenches. The voice was speaking in English, but it had a German accent, and it said, and I quote, Do not shoot after 12 o'clock, and we will not do so either. If you English come out and talk to us, we won't fire. Now, obviously, the British soldiers were suspicious, and one man actually left the trench to test out this invitation. When he returned with a German cigar, slowly both trenches began emptying into no man's land. German and British soldiers who had been firing at each other only hours before met in the middle of the battlefield without weapons. They sang Silent Night in differing languages, they shook hands, shared food, took photos together, and they even played a game of soccer, according to some accounts. In the words of British soldier Captain Robert Miles in his journal, We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable, a sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized, but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in the front. The funny thing is, is it seemed to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left, we can hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. So Dave, on the subject of the impromptu soccer game specifically, though, historian Alan Wakefield and others remain skeptical about that detail. He says this, if it happened, there are very few collaborative accounts. There's second and third hand accounts of somebody hearing of a game going on somewhere. Now, Dave, at the macro level, reports of this Christmas truce, they were not well received by both militaries who made it clear that no truces were permitted. The timing here is important too, Dave. The war had not been going on long and both sides expected that it would be over soon. Some of the darker weapons of war that would come later, like poison gas and air bombing, wouldn't come along until later in the war either. So the levels of hatred between the sides were not as high this early in the fighting. Most of these guys were still very young, and this was their first time experiencing a war. Reports are that in 1915 and 16, sides here and there would try to recreate the Christmas truce, but it never happened because the bitterness had run so deep by that point. But overall, Dave, this legend of the Christmas truce has persisted because it is such a beautiful picture of putting aside differences and meeting someone halfway, someone who is an enemy, but only because someone in power told you that they are an enemy. It's an interesting tale in looking past the walls between us and finding common ground, and in this case, a holiday season. The Christmas season is just very unique in that it presents a lot of opportunities to just bring people together, your friends and your family, to bond over shared experiences. And so the website and magazine Country Living recently released a list to try to help people come up with Christmas traditions that would help you, your family, and your friends really enjoy the season in a better way. Here's a few of them. Uh, Number one, attend a holiday parade. Okay, Okay. yeah, makes sense. Number two, start a collection. So it's got like some Christmas decor that maybe you put up together, whatever. Number three, decorate your house together. Okay, well, yeah, that that makes sense. Number four, let a goat eat your tree. (laughs) So country country living is kind of losing a a little bit here. I thought it was a parody (laughs) website. Let a goat eat your tree. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons, for Jason, And I'm Dave Trump. We'll see you next week.
when you were talking about filling up his sock with, uh, you know, medical bills, where I thought you were going with it was liability, like they get sued for being weird, and so that he would have to fill his sock with bars of soap to, like, fight people in prison. You know, that's where, that's where I, that's the direction I thought you were going. You took that to a dark place. <laughs> well, that's why I was kind of like, whoa, this is going to fight, to fight <laughs> off people. He's filling up his stocking, making it a weapon. <laughs> Back! Do you know who I am? (laughs) Do your best ho-ho. Oh, gosh, it's going to be bad. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) Ho-ho-ho. As it came out of my mouth, I was like, yeah. It's got to be more like, (laughs) ho-ho-ho-ho. You're saying it has a smoking problem, but 